I remember hearing from uh, David Cook, uh, the principal of Sydney Missionary and Bible College once, um, and he tells a story about a couple that he heard about who'd been living together. Uh, They said, this couple said, that, well, marriage was just a piece of paper, and, well, really, they weren't bothered with that piece of paper. But then they were invited to the baptism of a child of a friend of theirs, uh, so they went to a church in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, and during that service they heard the gospel, as it were, for the first time, and they actually became converted. Uh, they continued to live together for about two more weeks, um, only because one night after that church visit, um, they actually sat up in bed reading the Bible together. And as they read the Bible, they came under, both of them, they came under the deep conviction that the way in which they were living was actually wrong. And they separated immediately and began to plan for marriage. And the first question that came to my mind was, when I heard this story, what part of the Bible were they reading? What what could they read that actually brings them on such incredible conviction and such incredible change? Well, apparently, it was a Song of Songs. They read the Song of Songs and thought, their life needs to change. They read the Song of Songs, the grade of of songs. And so today, as part of uh, this EU's week uh, of public meetings on sex, we're going to look at this part of the Bible, uh, a part of God's word to us, which God says not only informs our minds, but has the power to transform our lives. We're going to read the Song of Songs. We're going to look at that together, uh, a book about sex. So today, we're going to look at this part of the Bible, which I don't think is often studied. Uh, You'll see there in your outlines that we're going to do two main things, two big things. Firstly, we're going to see what it actually says, and then secondly, we'll work out what what we're going to do with it. What does it mean for us? So what does it say? Let's start with that first. Um, Our our approach then, firstly, is to say what I don't think it is. What I don't think it is. See, I think plainly, if you read the Song of Songs, it's really a love poem uh, between a man and a woman. But how do you actually understand it? How do you actually interpret it? See, I think for most Christian history in the last 2,000 years or so, uh, most of the interpretations of the Song of Songs has been that it is an allegory, a sort of a hidden story of the way that God and his people, especially Christ and his church, relate to one another. So it's said by some Christian commentators, it's all about the love between God and his people. That's what the Song of Songs is about. But the trouble I have with that is that, well, there's actually no indications in the book itself about that's what it's about. I don't think that's what it's about. And it's just not the plain, straightforward reading of it. So if you read it, it just doesn't read like an allegory. And I think one of the reasons that people have come up with that sort of allegory is that, well, I think they think it's a bit of an embarrassment, actually, about what the book is obviously about. And the book is obviously about the celebration of sexual love between a man and a woman. It says sex is a wonderful thing to be enjoyed in this relationship. And lots of people in the Christian church over the years, I think, have been a little bit embarrassed about that. And I think, well, they want to spiritualise it. Well, I think the way to take the Song of Songs, then, is to take it the way it is. That is, I think it's a love poem between a country shepherd and his beloved, a Shulamite woman. I think that's how it's to be taken, a love poem between these two people. Now, it's going to get a little bit hard as we get into it, uh, because I don't think it's always straightforward. We're going to read it, and it gets confusing a little bit. Because at times, when we read about this man, he's a shepherd boy. 
But then at other times, when you read him again, it sounds like, well, he's the great King Solomon. And sometimes the woman is seen as a girl from the country. And at other times, she's seen robed in majesty, robed in beauty. And we'll need to work that out as we work, work through it. Now, as any piece of literature, as any book in the Bible, as any general piece of literature, we need to do a few things. Firstly, we need to work out what the context is when we're trying to work out what it means. It's context, if that's possible. We actually need to work out what it actually says, and then to see if possible we'll trace out any themes. So we need our Bibles open, and if you're a visitor with us today, don't worry, because I think EUers are really generous. They keep on looking around to see whether people have got Bibles or not, and they'll pass them around and make sure that they're sitting next to people with Bibles. So if you get your Bibles open, that would be really helpful for us because you need to look at the text. And um, the Song of Songs, well, it's sort of near the middle of the Bible. If you open it up, you'll probably fall to Psalms. You go to the right, it gets to Proverbs. We get to Ecclesiastes, and then we're at the Song of Songs. Song of Songs. So first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at the context. And immediately, I think we have a problem here. Song of Songs, chapter 1, doesn't have a context. See, unlike most of the other Old Testament books that we have, we actually don't know when the Song of Songs was set. We have no idea. It doesn't seem to be historically located. The opening line, though, of the book, well, it helps us a little bit, I think. The first line there, in verse 1, chapter 1, Solomon's Song of Songs. And I think the, the presence of the name Solomon there actually helps us to anchor this book, the Song of Songs, to what we know, or what Christians call, wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes that the EU has been uh, having as part of their public meetings tour just before the mid-semester break. We did four weeks on the book of Ecclesiastes uh, with Andrew Cadet. And that's part of the wisdom literature. That's what the EU has been looking at um, before the break. And, and that sort of literature is actually independent of what's going on historically. It's independent of what's going on politically. We don't actually need to, to have a time frame to make sense of it. And so in some ways... Well, it doesn't matter if we, doesn't, we, we don't have a historical context. That's okay. But the context that we do have, though, is that although it's not some part of the history of Israel that we want to trace through, it, it actually deals with humanity in general. Now, you don't have to look this up, but I think the context that we're looking at in this book, which is really helpful to know any part of literature, you always want to work out the context, is the book of Genesis. Uh, for some of you, you might want to turn that up to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, but for others of you, you might just want to jot it down. Genesis is the book that provides for us the foundation for the understanding of the Song of Songs. What's it all about? Well, Genesis 2, you'll remember, and some of you know, that in verse 18 of chapter 2, it, it talks about the creation. And God says in creation, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him, says God. And you remember how God makes a woman out of the man, and he brings a woman to the man, and the man responds with this ecstasy. You remember Patricia saying yesterday, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And because of this, in verse 24 of chapter 2, it says, For this reason the man will leave his mother and father, his primary relationship, leave that, and to be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. And so after this leaving and cleaving, as it's known, to one another, that there, there's this unity of flesh. And in verse 25, it, it tells us, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's a great theologian once, Karl Barth, who said, 
Well, the Song of Songs is really an exposition of that one verse. That one verse that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's what the 177 verses in the Song of Songs is about. That is, they were both naked in the one another's presence and they felt no shame. My beloved is mine and I am his. But I think most of us actually know the story of Genesis. We turn over the page from Genesis 2 to Genesis chapter 3 and we know that in chapter 3 the serpent tempts the couple as they eat the forbidden fruit. And, and the garden with all its blessings, well, that's removed. It's actually chucked out of the garden. And the joy which God had set up in marriage is distorted. And so in verse 7 of chapter 3, that, we, we read something really interesting. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve realised their nakedness, and they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. See, not the joy of being naked and feeling no shame at the end of chapter 2, but now there's vulnerability. There's no longer simple loving the world, but one where you have to protect yourself. And even in marriage, that closest of all human relationships, really, the best of human relationships, the woman's going to seek to dominate her husband and her husband seeks to dominate her wife, his wife. That's a part of the curse that God places on the man and the woman. Well, there's the setting for the book of Song of Songs. We live outside the garden, in a world where, well, relationships are distorted, really. Where relationships, rather than just being for the joy for each other, what we get is pain, and what we get is manipulation sometimes. And so, the Song of Songs is written with this beautiful story, and yet we know that it can be abused and mistreated. That sex itself can be misused and abused. And rather than submission and service, what we can get is domination. So I work as doctor in DY. Uh, DY is a funny location, really. Uh, it's, it's a yuppie area, right on the beach, a lot of new high-rises, a lot of wealthy people moving in. And yet, right next to those really big high-rises, those glossy, glamorous buildings, are women's refuges. Safe houses for women and children. That's the world we live in in Sydney. And that's a world of the Song of Songs, I think. A world outside the Garden of Eden. Well, that's the context. With anything that we read, we need to look at the context. And the context is that we're now outside the Garden. Outside of God's uh, great creation as it was intended in the Garden. Well, what does the book actually say? What's the actual content this Song of Songs? And we're going to go back to the Song of Songs now. And we're going to stay there for most of the rest of our talk. We're going to look at the Song of Songs. And the first thing that we need to note is the sort of literature that it is. What, are, what is it that we're actually looking at? Well, the sort of literature that we're dealing with is, wis, uh, is wisdom literature, sure, but it's actually poetry as well. Uh, and this is where um, the advertising is a bit of a crock. Um, I think I'm known as Dr. Michael Kwan. I'm a GP and stuff. But I'm not going to give much medicine today, really. Um, I'm going to talk about the Bible, uh, something that I love dearly. Um, and we can all access this. But when I went through school, I loved my sciences, that's why I did medicine. Um, and I was pretty crappy at poetry, really. Um, but although I, I wasn't very good at poetry, I wasn't very good at English, uh, I still know the power of words and the power of feelings and the power of emotions. Uh, if you want to put me on, on one of those Myers-Briggs spectrum, I'm an F. I cry at movies. I, uh, I love the emotional side of life. Um, 
I know that. It's my wife's birthday on Monday, next Monday, on the 9th of October. So it's a good thing that you remember. Uh, but, um, you know, I know that it's not good when, I, when, when next Monday I go to Sharon and I say, well, it's my bounden duty as your husband to present you with this gift on the date of your birth. Uh, you know, it just doesn't work that way. It's much better to say something like, there's nothing that makes me happier than to see a smile on your face. Here's some flowers. You know, the guys are right. <laughs> or, you know, you, you can go analysing things sometimes. I mean, how do you analyse that relationship? Now, here's something that someone wrote once about a guy giving flowers to a girl. An adult male human being, a homo sapien with XY chromosomes, acting in the first-person role, bestows gratuitously, confers, delivers, or hands over as a pledge a fragrant plant or vegetation. <laughs> Particularly, it is attractively shaped flower, which grows on the shrub of the genus Rosa, usually red, white, or yellow in character, although a wide variety may, may be found, to an adult woman uh, denoting his state of feeling with regards to that person, which arises from a recognition of attractive qualities and attachment. It just doesn't work with poetry sometimes. I can still remember um, in my first year at university doing um, a physiology practice. Uh, some of you do sciences and you know what physiology practices are about. But I don't know whether you have this nowadays. Um, but I remember going in there with a few of my friends from school and, and circles from church and things like that. And, and one of my great friends at that time, Sandy, picked up this rabbit and started stroking it and cuddling it. And I just thought, no, no attachment, that's bad. Um, because what happens in physiology practice is that we, we cut up poor little rabbits and, and we clamp arteries and we watch heartbeats and stuff like that. And at the end of experiment, you get a dead rabbit. What we have relationship with is something living and vibrant and, and fantastic. A rabbit that you can play with, that can jump around. And yet sometimes when you study it in so much detail, what you're left with is a dead animal. And I hope today that as we look at the Song of Songs, as we look at this, after looking at the context, after looking at the content, after looking at its themes, it won't be a dead letter to you. It won't be a dead book to you. It's going to be vibrant because it's full of word pictures. It's, it's, it uses sensual, extravagant and poetic language. It's a language of love. The language of the Song of Songs is not the language of logic and argument like some of Paul's letters may be, but the language of affection uh, that makes a heart sing and, and the language of delight. It's poetry and we need to read it as poetry. So look at verse 2, chapter 1. you still got it there. The woman says... Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your mouth is more delightful than wine. See, it's not, oi, give me a smooch, love. <laughs> it's not like that. It's kiss me with the kisses of your love. Your love is more beautiful than wine. It's a language of extravagance, isn't it? It's a language of poetry. And so, as we read the Song of Songs, I've got to say to you, we can't expect to, to tie down every image because it's a language of poetry. And just like poetry, you can't tie down every image. You get a feel for it. That's what it's like here in the Song of Songs. So what we've got here in the Song of Songs isn't an analysis of love, but pictures of love. It doesn't tell us what we must say or what we must do. It gives us a feel for what, it was, what it's like. But we do need to analyse it. But reading it is really the most important thing. You see, when I was planning for these talks, originally I thought it'd be great for a married couple to do this. And I was going to get M.G. Anderson and, and Toby, right, husband and wife, to come down and actually read the passage to each other. 
But I timed it, and it actually takes 15, 20 minutes. So, but look, if you've got time spare, you've got nothing, if, if the next hour is a boring lecture, right, get out the Song of Songs and read it. It's great. It'll do you a lot of good. Now, as I said to you before, um, uh, the problem with the Song of Songs is that the man and the woman seem to change. Sometimes he's the shepherd, sometimes he's the king, sometimes she's the poor farm girl, sometimes she's dressed up in jewellery. And so, what is it that holds these love poems, or this love poem together? What is it that actually gives it unity, apart from the title? And I think here, it, it's where a story actually holds, ties the whole uh, poem together. Uh, and so, um, if, if, if it helps you, here's a general overview, here's a structure that when you go to your own reading, that you can hang things on. Um, here's a structure. And the story, I think, actually begins with a woman in chapter 1, the beloved, as she's called, calling out for her loved one, the man, her loved one, uh, and, and he responds to her with words of tenderness. And so I think chapters 1 and 2, it's all about a conversation between uh, the lover and the beloved. The words full of praise. That's what chapter 1 and 2 is about. Conversations full of praise. Words to each other of love. And I think in chapters 3 to 6, it's a dream sequence. It's a dream that the woman has as she lies on her bed and she thinks about her lover. See, you can see that in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I think uh, the introduction here is the, is the thing that gives us an idea of what's going to happen. It's a dream sequence. And in a dream, he's transformed from being a simple shepherd boy into the grandeur of King Solomon. Here she thought she was going out with a country boy. And yet in a dream, she turns into something spectacular. He turns to the King Solomon. And she dreams in a dream their wedding day, of their wedding night, and the beauty of the one that she will actually wed. And then in chapter 7, well, the dream is no longer there. Uh, the dream has actually given way to reality. And it contains more words of delight between the man and the woman. And in chapter 8, we get a climax. We see the couple, after their marriage, is consummated. They're walking hand in hand, and they're reminiscing of their upbringing and their past. So I think that's how it goes. If you want a coat hanger that helps you read, that's what it is. Chapters 1 to 2, words of poems to each other. Chapters 3 to 6, her dream where she's transformed and he's transformed. And chapter 6 to 7, they speak to each other again. And, and in chapter 8, after they're married, uh, they share in each other's past and their backgrounds. But do read it, won't you? Do read it. Well, it's important now to, to actually trace some of the themes and actually get a feel for it. Let's read some of the Song of Songs. Uh, so what, the, what are the Song of Songs about? What is it about? The first and most obvious theme, the most, first and most obvious theme, is about praise and passion between a man and a woman. That's what it's about. So just have a look at some examples. Uh, you're there, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And you'll see how this woman loves his masculinity. Here he is, leaping across the mountains. He's like a gazelle or a young stag. Have a look at it there. Listen, my lover. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. We'll go down to chapter 5, verse 10. Flick over a few pages. My lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding amongst 10,000. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy. Um, 
uh, we're in the bathroom, my wife and I, and, and I, I said to Sharon, uh, do you think I am radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000? She just laughed. <laughs> his head is pure as gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. Um, I think MG and Toby are quite glad they're not reading this to each other in front of us. Um, his cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivories, decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marbles, set on bases of pure gold. Legs are like marble, set on bases of pure gold. And notice, he's equally enthusiastic about her femininity. Uh, turn back to chapter 2, verse 14. Turn back a few pages. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in verse 4, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And he goes on, if you look in chapter 4, and he speaks of all these beautiful feminine characteristics of his beloved. Her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her mouth, her temples, her neck, her breasts. And so they rejoice in one another's masculinity and femininity. And you see, through this song, you see the language of extravagant praise, the language of love here. And I think we've lost that from a society. We just don't know how to speak with those sort of words anymore. This praise leads to great self-esteem, I think. It's a wonderful thing when you're in a relationship where you can praise each other with deep felt emotions. Um, praise is one of those big things that we, we talk about in, in even raising children nowadays. Uh, one of the things I remember was that I used to be an extrovert. Uh, a, a guy who just, you know, would just blurt his mouth before I think sort of thing. Uh, I was really out there. But one of the incredible things that happened was when I was growing up, I just still remember getting uh, marks from my report card and, and getting great marks, like 97 or 98 and all these good things. And yet the thing that came back from within my family was, well, where's the other 2%? Where's the other 1%? And that can be so crushing. And yet this is wonderful. This is a relationship where they're building each other up. They're extravagant about their praise. Have a look at chapter 7 there. Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful. I'm sorry for the flicking back and forth in, in the book. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O princess daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of craftsmen's hands. And yet one of the things that we know is that she's not a princess. She's worked hard in the sun, and she says in chapter 1 that, about that. But to him... She's a princess's daughter, a beautiful piece of art. And you see, they appreciate the beauty of one another. True beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So turn back to chapter two, uh, chapter one. You see how this incredible self-esteem is just so fantastic. You see in chapter one, verse six, she knows that she's not a princess. She knows that she's an ordinary girl. And she's worked hard. She's not perfect. See what she says in verses 6 and following. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. 
My own vineyard I have neglected. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you, uh, where you rest your sheep at midday, why should I be veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? See, it's just a funny cultural thing. In the Middle East at that time, apparently, light skin was highly uh, treasured. Whereas I think in Australia, everybody tries to get a tan. It's just funny. Light people want to get dark and dark people want to get light. It's just ridiculous. I can still remember growing up and, and my mother and grandmother used to walk around with umbrellas in, in the sun in summer, uh, not wanting to become dark. But here she is. She's a darkie. Right? She, she works out in the field all the time. She's a hard labourer, working all the time when she was young. But notice how she sees herself. She knows what's true, and yet have a look in verse 5, just before that passage, the way that she frames that. Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. She says, yes, I'm dark, but I'm beautiful. Now, Please don't let me uh, don't hear me say to you that you need a boyfriend or girlfriend or a husband or wife uh, or, or wife to, to to make you be worth something. Don't don't hear me say that that you need someone to actually make you feel good. It's obviously not true. But the point I'm trying to make is this: beautiful praise from someone you love surely does help. It really does help build up your identity of who you are. Beautiful praise from someone you love sure helps you feel good about yourself. And apart from the great praise that we get, it's also a song of passion as well. It's passionate. The husband enjoys and the wife enjoys it. There's an equality of relationship. Uh, They both initiate sexual activity and they enthusiastically enter into it. And those who say sex is not good or that sex is not important, well, they're wrong. And they should come here to the Song of Songs where you see adventure and creative adventure. Have a look at chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. Here's the sex bit. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I'll climb the palm tree. I'll take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance and your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And look at her response in verse 11. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I'll give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance. And at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. Here is both husband and wife male and female, in a beautifully poetic way, describing the act in which they both enjoy. They enjoy one another in sexual intercourse. There's intimacy, which is playful and liberating. What we have is a relationship between a man and a woman, full of praise, full of passion. But it's also in a context of commitment. See, the song is about a relationship between a man and a woman that eventually reaches its fulfilment in sexual union. That's what happens. But it's much more than just physical release or, or physical technique or something like that. This isn't a Kama Sutra, a, a sex manual. It's much more than something that you do to someone or even with someone. What's it about? At the end of the day, what we see is this sexual union between a man and a woman, yes. But it's an end result of a great affection, 
a great intimacy, a great trust, a great commitment. See, it's not just any man or any woman together. And the book actually repeats certain themes over and over again. And one of those themes, and probably one of the dominant themes of the book here, actually comes in chapter 2, verse 16. My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Chapter 2, verse 16. The idea is repeated again in chapter 6, verse 3. I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. Chapter 7, verse 10. I belong to my lover, and his desires for me. My lover is mine, and I am his. I'm my lover's and my lover is mine. I belong to my lover. It's a committed relationship. A a relationship of mutual commitment. I am his and he is mine. It's an exclusive relationship. It's one of those relationships, you see, where it's quite appropriate to be jealous. And and you read it in chapter 4, I think. Have a read of it later. But when you read chapter 4, it's not one of self-sufficiency. Uh, that's not how they fulfilled. But they fulfilled in giving wholeheartedly themselves to each other. They give to each other. Someone once said about marriage that unless you can say that you've lost something since being married, your marriage is a failure. I didn't like that at first. But there's truth in it. Because what you lose when you're married is, is your selfishness and your independence. I don't think I anymore, I think we. It's my wife and I. And I think that's exactly what the Song of Songs is picking up. It's not the language of gimme, 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 gimme. It's a language of surrendering myself to you. And she surrendering herself to him. That's what marriage is about. And so it's also the language of great vulnerability. Because we have to give up what we're comfortable with. You have to give up what we're safe with. You have to give up your independence. And it's amazing that at the end of the song, the man is content with his own because it's such a prized relationship. He doesn't even envy Solomon's thousand wives. That's how many wives Solomon's meant to have had. He has his own vineyard. He's his own woman, his own wife, and they belong to each other. And so despite in a world where outside of the Garden of Eden, as we said, love is still beautiful. See, it's a passionate relationship between a man and a woman. It's a praiseworthy relationship between a man and woman. It's in the context of a committed relationship. But yet, we also do know that it's also in the fallen world. See, one of the problems with Song of Songs is that we can so easily idealise it and to think it's perfect or something. But no, it's life outside the garden. And the book actually adds words of caution. I'll bring your attention to a couple of them today. But the first one you actually find in chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. And I think what the, the, the writer is trying to say is that this is a relationship which actually has destructive potential as well. After the curse of Adam and Eve, you remember, that her desire will be for her husband and that she would rule over him. This is a relationship which can be frustrating and which can bring friction Because when you're in the intimate relationship of commitment, your partner actually gets a glimpse of the sort of selfish person that you actually are. That's what it's like. And your partner knows even more than perhaps you do about your own selfishness. That's certainly true in my relationship. You actually don't know how selfish you are until you're married. 
And it's frightening sometimes. And so you've got to watch out for those destructive little foxes that can come into the vineyard and disturb the vineyard by digging away at the roots of the vine. And so be careful of those things, he says. And as though the lover is saying to his beloved, look, let us be careful of those things and nip them in the bud. Keep working at that relationship because ultimately it's a relationship between two people who are outside the garden. But secondly, in this unashamed delight in each other, there remains something else that's also repeated over and over again. Have a read of it again. You'll see it repeated three times, I think, at least, uh, in the Bible as any other pieces of literature. When you read it, any repeated phrase, you need to notice. And one of the things that is repeated is this cautionary note that you get in chapter 2, verse 7, just a little bit before that passage. Chapter 2, verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Chapter 2, verse 7. If you turn over the page to chapter 3, verse 5, it says the same sort of thing. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Chapter 3, verse 5. Or chapter 8, verse 4. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Here is a woman so infatuated, so in love with the one who is going to marry her, and she speaks to the other women, probably the single women around Jerusalem, and they're very sobering words when she speaks. And it almost sounds like a charge. I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, it sounds like. Don't awaken this passion passion, until it's the appropriate time. Until it's ready in the context of leaving and cleaving. A committed relationship that can be expressed. Because I don't know, when when you speak to people who are head over heels in love with each other, uh, who delight in holding hands with each other, um, which is the case that you find here in the Song of Songs, uh, you don't often find words of soberness. Often you don't find words that are actually realistic. And here the woman who's in love gives the words of warning. Don't do things that are out of keeping with the state of relationship that you're actually in. Don't do that. Don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Don't be in love with love. Don't get carried away with actions and thoughts that aren't appropriate to where the relationship is at. Don't arouse or awaken love until the time is right. See, yesterday Patricia told us about the chemical effects of love. All those things that can run around, the dopamine, the serotonin, all the things that can do amazing things. And yet it's still a choice. You still have to make a decision. And I think they're words that we need to hear. Not just the woman of Jerusalem. The Song of Songs, I think, is ever so realistic. It's not just idealism. This is it. It realises that outside the Garden then, there's real love. But outside the Garden of Eden, love can easily turn into lust. And affection can so easily turn to rape. So don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Because it's one of the most powerful of our affections and emotions. We're going to look at this more tomorrow. As we look at the whole flow of what the Bible and Christianity has to say about sex. That sex is beautiful. But we live in the fallen world where sex is corrupted. We live in a world where we're victims of sexual promiscuity and victims of a sexual fallenness. And not only are we victims, we're actually agents as well. But the solution, I think, comes in Christ. But we're going to deal more of that tomorrow. It's amazing, isn't it, that sometimes when um, we listen to the radio or look at the TV, read the newspaper, that when you see some of the gruesome murders around the place, 
the, the way that this, they describe it are crimes of passion. It's just a funny way of putting things. Because love can do that. Love which can so easily be directed to one person can so easily turn to the murder of that person. And so the warning of the woman says, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Like I said, we'll that more tomorrow. But the Song of Song realises too how hard it was to wait. The whole dream sequence of chapters 3 to 6 shows the difficulty of having to wait until the right time. And the woman dreams of, of sex with the man who's going to be her husband. I think there's real difficulty in waiting for the right time. But despite the warnings, love is beautiful here. But what do we do with it in our last few minutes together? What do we do with this book? Well, I think we actually learn something about God. And we learn that sex isn't bad. You know how it is sometimes? I, I don't know. Like, you know, sex in our Australian vernacular is often known as doing a naughty or something, right? And, and you look at some... Well, you don't. I hope you don't. But, you know, how, how you're reading the sports section on the back of the he- uh, telegraph, right? And, and right next to those are the personal classified things, right? And, and it's all those horrible advertisements about, you know, a misuse of sex, right? But it's, it's all advertised in terms of sin and corruption and stuff. That's not what it's about. The Bible says sex is a good thing. What the Song of Songs is saying here is that God is clearly saying that love and sexual love, especially in the context of a, of a proper relationship, a commitment, is a beautiful gift from God. And I think we've got to stand up against people who want to call themselves Christians or otherwise and say that sex is a bad thing. Song of Songs is but one of the passages in the Bible that says sex is a great gift of God. Even outside the Garden of Eden, sex and love and marriage, uniting one person together for the rest of your life, it's a good thing worth striving for. And so Christians need to be the best lovers, really, because love is one of God's blessings. Now, I was talking to Patricia yesterday, and and I was talking to her, are there actually Christian counsellors around the place? Christian sexual counsellors? And she can only think of one, and I can only think of one. Amelia, Amelia Haynes, whom I know, in the eastern suburbs. But that's it. But I reckon if sex is a great thing from God, and we want good sex, we ought to have lots of Christians in the industry. C.S. Lewis said that the pleasure is God's invention, and he has given us bodies that can enter into pleasure. It's almost as though this book, The Song of Songs, can be titled The Joy of Sex by the Creator, the one who thought of it in the first place. So I think this book, The Song of Songs, teaches us that God is pro-love. Pro-love, not just intellectually, but in a way that makes our emotions sing. Um, One of the things that resonate about God's love is other person-centeredness. Now, I don't want to turn The Song of Songs into an allegory or something like that. But it's amazing how the Bible uses the image of marriage, of that marriage relationship in the way that God talks about his relationship with his people Israel. And God guards his relationship uh, with jealousy. He takes commitment seriously. And if you ever read the so-called minor prophets in the Bible, in the Old Testament, towards the back of the, the, the Old Testament, it talks about God's commitment to his people. And despite his people keep on turning away, committing adultery against God, going after other gods... God still continues to be monogamous with his people. God doesn't desert them. God stays with his people. 
God hates divorce, he says. God shows a love which desires the other person for himself. Love is just. Possess the other person wholly and exclusively. That's what God is like with his people. And one of the other images that it gets transformed and used is God's amazing love that finds itself in Jesus. Um, I want you to turn with me one last time to the end of the Bible, to a book called 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, it's right towards the back of the Bible. But you see the outworking of this other person love that we get a glimpse of in this marriage relationship, in the way that God uses it uh, to describe his relationship with his people. Or with the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Right? God is the author of love. You want to know what love is like? Well, don't look at yourself and, and then fling it back to God or something like that. You want to know what God, love is like? You look at God. You look at what God has done. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. He's the author of love. He describes what love is. He, he makes sense of love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's what it's about. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But that's what God has done. God has sent his son to take the punishment in our place. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. God loves him, us so much that he gave his one and only son. You see, if we're really honest with ourselves, as we reflect on life for a, a moment, we only know too well how dark our own skin is, really. How unlovely our appearance is, like the Shulamite woman. But like her, we know that we're truly lovely, if you actually know God. If you have a lover like God. Lovely to God who loves us and who makes an invitation to leave this world of sin behind. That so easily entangles us. See, that's a difference that Jesus makes. I've been worried, sort of like, looking at the song songs, really, at Sydney University at a public meeting at lunchtime where most of you are single. And I think there's something innate in us um, that really, we, we don't like our singleness. We, we, we like company. And for a lot of us, we desperately want to be married or at least in a relationship which, which expresses this commitment and love for one another. And when we read these words and we hear about these things, it really just rubs salt in the wound, doesn't it, sometimes? When you hear the joy of relationships, the joy of marriage, the joy of sex, it can sometimes really hurt. And yet one of the amazing things that God keeps on saying about his relationship with his people, like a marriage is that our earthly marriages actually give way to the marriage, the great marriage. Uh, in, in the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, it, it, it talks about the relationship between husbands and wives and the way they ought to relate to one another. And the Apostle Paul actually quotes the same passage that we looked at earlier on in Genesis chapter 2. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul quotes that. But then he comments on it. He says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's what, God, what, that's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about marriage, yes. But it's actually a great relationship between Christ and the church. 
That's what it gives away to. See, marriage here is only for the lifetime in some ways. As a staff worker, for, this is my 10th year now working at Sydney University, uh, full-time as a senior staff worker. Uh, one of the invariable conversations that I have every year is uh, about students asking about who they should marry and, you know, because they've got to choose really carefully because they've got to be married for the whole of their life, right? But frankly, it's only one lifetime. No, that, that's facetious. <laughs> 50 years. I mean, it is important and it, and it shows all the beauty, even outside the garden. It's a fantastic relationship, a sex and relationship. And yet this relationship... That, the, that, that Jesus transforms and God uses to describe the relationship in the New Testament and the Old Testament outside of the Song of Songs is that this is a relationship that lasts all eternity. It's a relationship of marriage that it passes just one lifetime, 40, 50, 60 years or whatever, but the marriage of the Lamb which lasts all eternity. Well, I hope you enjoyed the Song of Songs and I hope if nothing else today that you realise and, and you learn and you remember that God is pro-sex. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. God is the one who sets it up. This male and female praiseworthy and passionate relationship based on commitment, even in a fallen world, God sets it up and it's beautiful. And yet outside of, of the garden, outside of the book, we actually see how God uses that idea of marriage and sees the incredible marriage between the Lamb and his people, of God's great commitment to his people. Well, we're going to learn more about that tomorrow. Um, but for now, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for good things and great things. Thank you so much that you're God who's created sex and relationship. And that we can make sense of those relationships, not by the fallen relationships that we have around us, but look at you who uh, models great relationships. And that great other-person, jealous commitment relationship that we see in you sending your son Jesus to die for us on our behalf. Father, help us to reflect on that. Help us to think on that. Help us to be people who know true love.